So uh, we're in a series called God Has a Name, and we're looking at a little verse in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And this is a really important verse we've said. It's the one and only place where God describes himself to a man. And so this is God saying, this is exactly what I'm like. This is how I want you to think about me. And it's, it was, had become so important to the Old Testament Jewish people that this verse became the most quoted verse in the Old Testament by the Old Testament. So in other words, the Old Testament authors circled back to this verse over and over again, quoting it, alluding to it, mentioning it. It is just that important because it tells us this is what God is like. This is, this is the way you should think about God. And it's so important because it's important the way you think about God because uh, the way you think about God will shape your life. Uh, We become like the God that we worship. So if your God is cruel and angry and self-righteous, chances are you also will be cruel, angry, and self-righteous. You will become like the God that you worship. And so we're spending some time in this Old Testament passage asking the question, what is God like? And we've looked at a couple adjectives so far. First, we saw that God is a God who is compassionate and gracious, and we saw what that meant. And then we saw last week that God is a God who is slow to anger. And with each one of these attributes, we're asking the question, uh, am I compassionate and am I slow to anger? If this is who God is and I worship this God, am I also this way? So uh, are we compassionate? Are we slow to anger? And and this morning, we're going to look at a new attribute. We're going to look at the verse, the little adjective where it says that God is a God of steadfast love. God says, this is how I want you to think about me. I am a God of steadfast love. Now, I think that all of us, um, or at least most of us, have an attribute of our personality that pretty much defines us, that kind of sticks out uh, more than all of our other attributes. Uh, You know, and it's the attribute that people think of when they think about you. And so maybe you're funny, and the one thing that people think about when they meet you is, oh boy, that person is really funny. Or maybe you are grouchy. (laughs) This is you, and this is kind of, you're like grouchy, the dwarf, right, and the seven dwarfs. That's what people think about when they think about you. You're a grouchy person. Or maybe you're quiet. You're really shy, and and they, they think about you, oh, she's really, really quiet. Or maybe you're really loud and boisterous. And this is the main thing that defines your personality. I think all of us have something that sort of defines us. And by the way, this is where nicknames come from. Uh, My dad, it's Father's Day, so my dad used to tell me a story that when he was in high school, all of his friends had nicknames that kind of defined their personality, that kind of boiled down their personality in a nutshell. And he said, I had one friend that we just called Weird. Because that's what, I mean, you thought about him, that was the one thing that defined him more than anything else. And so he'd come along and they'd say, what's up, Weird? Because that's just who he was. And my dad never told me his nickname, but it was probably pretty bad, I imagine. But uh, what is the one thing that people think about when they think about you? The nickname that we have for Lucas in the office is Sweet Pea. (laughs) Oh, Split Pea. I thought it was Sweet Pea. Um, (laughs) You could ask Lucas afterwards why we call him that. But usually there's one thing that defines us more than anything else that people think about when they meet us. And for God, the one thing that defines God more than anything else is this particular attribute. More than anything else, this the attribute of steadfast love defines who God is. This is the most prominent feature of God's character. This is, this is the one thing that, you know, if there's one thing that controls everything else about God's attribute, it is this one thing. God is a God of steadfast love. Love. 
And this is why in the verse, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, this uh, adjective is mentioned twice. It's the only adjective in the list that's mentioned back-to-back, steadfast love. And for an ancient Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, if you wanted to really drive a point home, you would repeat that thing again. And so this is the only adjective that's repeated as if to say God, 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 this is the one thing that is truest about Yahweh. More than anything else, I want you to think of me, he says, as a God of steadfast love. And in fact, as you read through uh, the ancient Hebrew scriptures, this word steadfast love, it's one Hebrew word, we'll talk about it, but this one word is mentioned more than any other word um, to describe God this one word. 250 times throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is a God of steadfast love. In fact, there's a New Testament author who simply says God is love. Right, so this is the truest thing about God. It's, the mo- it's his most influential and popular attribute. It drives the storyline of the Bible. It is just that important. But what does the word love mean? What does it mean that God is the God of steadfast love? Because the word love is a little bland, isn't it? Right, we say I love tacos, I love burritos, I love enchilada, I love Mexican food, that's why I'm, <laughs> I, love, I love my wife and I love this church and I love sunsets, right? B- love is kind of a bland word, it's kind of a nondescript word in our vocabulary. So what does it mean that God is a God of steadfast love? Does it mean that he's just really, really nice? Right, does it mean that he, that he just really, really likes a lot of things? What does it mean that God is a God of steadfast love? Well, in the Hebrew language, the, this word is the Hebrew word chesed, right? With a little ch there. Can we all say that together? That was a little bit weak. Let's do it again. Chesed, right. This, this word, like I said, is mentioned 250 times throughout the Old Testament. It is a huge word. It is so important. God says, this is, the, this is the most prominent thing about me. I am a God of chesed. Now, there's no English equivalent to this Hebrew word chesed. And so uh, it's translated several different ways. And so uh, the, the writers translate it, uh, chesed, steadfast love, like we said, or covenant faithfulness, or unfailing love. And so the, the idea here is that this is God's commitment to us has said. This is God's loyalty to us, his covenant loyalty. This is God saying, I am so committed to you and your well-being that I, I'm, I'm going to go down with the ship. I'm going to be with you to the bitter end. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This is what it means when God says, I'm a God of chesed or God of steadfast love. It's commitment. It's loyalty. It's undying, unfailing faithfulness. And so the question becomes, are we this way? Are we faithful? Are we committed? Are our relationships marked by covenant loyalty? Or do we bail? You know, when things get boring or when things get uncomfortable or when things get difficult, are we out? Are we marked by unfailing love? And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to to explore this question, God's unfailing love, and also are we marked, are our relationships marked by this faithfulness? I want to do it by looking at a very famous story, and it's the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. And this, the story of Ruth, it's, it's, it's kind of an odd story to go to on Father's Day, I guess, because it's the only uh, uh, book in the Bible that's told from a female perspective, 
the only book in the Bible told from a woman's point of view. And furthermore, um, most of the men in the story die. (laughs) So why are we looking at this on Father's Day? Well, because there's no greater illustration, there's no greater picture of what has said is uh, in somebody's life than than, than this story of Ruth. Ruth is a living illustration that illustrates, or a living parable that illustrates the concept of hesed. So we're going to look at it. And we see it mostly in Ruth chapter 1. There's one, um, it's a little uh, speech that Ruth gives uh, to her her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's a speech that just encapsulates what it means to be committed and faithful to another person. And we're going to look at that, but before we get at it, get at the, that little statement, we've got to look at the backstory because there is a backstory that, that gives this little statement its punch, okay? So uh, we're going to go back and just look at the beginning of the story. So the story opens up with uh, Naomi married to a man named Elimelech, and they're living in a, a, a little city called Bethlehem, and you need to remember that. That's an important little detail. So here they are living in, in a land, uh, Bethlehem, uh, Naomi and Elimelech are married, and they have two, ch- uh, two sons, uh, Chilion and uh, Malone. And I had trouble remembering the two sons' names, and so uh, this week, I, the way I remembered them was uh, Sylvester Malone and uh, Chillin like Bob Dylan, right? So that's the way my weird brain works, so this is... Uh, Elimelech, Naomi, their two sons, uh, Sylvester Malone and uh, Chillin, or Chilean. They're living in Bethlehem. But there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in in Bethlehem, and so they've got to leave to find food. And it must have been a very desperate situation because they they get up, they leave uh, their ancestral homeland, and they go to a place called Moab. And Moab, for a Jewish person who lived in Bethlehem, would have been an unclean, foreign place to live. And the only reason why they would have gone to a place like this is if they were desperate. And so they leave Bethlehem, they go and they settle in this land of Moab, where they finally were able to find food. But as soon as they enter the land of Moab, they're living there for just a short time, and tragedy strikes. Uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. We don't know what he died from, but he passed away there in the land of Moab. And imagine what it would be like to not only lose your husband, but also to lose your husband in a foreign land. Imagine how alone she must have felt. You know, this is before the days where you can get on an airplane and get the support from your family or send an email or uh, write a Facebook post or something like that. She is all alone with no familial support in this foreign land and her husband dies. So she's there with her two sons. But then soon, her, uh, her, her, her two sons, they marry uh, a couple of women, um, Ruth is one of them, is the name of the book, and another son named, or another woman named uh, Orpah. And the way I remembered Orpah is Oprah, right? Of course. And so uh, Orpah and Ruth uh, marry uh, Chillin and Malone, and there they are in the land of Moab, but soon tragedy strikes again. Uh, what was that? That was weird. Uh, tragedy strikes again, and uh, uh, Malone and Chillin pass away. And so now uh, Ruth is left alone in Moab with her two daughters-in-law and nobody else. Now, this would have been a horrible situation for her. Not only would she have lost both of her sons and her husband, but a woman's worth in that day was all bound up in the men she was attached to, and her economic uh, situation was also attached to that. So here she is, uh, bereft, 
destitute economically and utterly, completely alone in a foreign land. That's Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And so Naomi decides to head back. She decides to head back to Bethlehem. This is her only hope of survival, to go back to the place where she had family around, at least distant relatives. And so she packs up and she leaves with her two daughters-in-law back to Bethlehem. But somewhere on the way, we don't know where it was, but somewhere on the way she stops and she turns to Orpah and Ruth and she says, okay, listen, I'm too old to get remarried. Uh, there's no, you have no hope. You have no future with me. I want you to go back to Moab, find husbands, and get, yourself, get yourselves a life. You know, you're still young enough. You could still uh, have a future. And so leave, go away. It's okay. Don't worry about me. Go back to Moab. Now, Orpah takes her up on that. Orpah says, okay, I understand. I'm, headed, I'm heading back. But Ruth sticks by Naomi's side. She won't leave. And Naomi, Naomi tries to get her to leave, but she refuses to go. And then finally, uh, there's this amazing statement, that she, the, the little speech she gives to Naomi, which illustrates the concept of chesed. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more so also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Ruth sticks to Naomi, and she says, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. I don't care where you go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people, and your land will be my land. I am not going to forsake you. I'm sticking with you, Naomi. And this is a picture of the biblical concept of chesed. This is a, a living image of steadfast love. It's commitment. And what kind of commitment is it? Well, it's a, it's a sacrificial commitment. You see, in, in doing this, uh, Ruth was limiting all of her other options. She was, in, in a sense, losing her life. She could go back. She could get remarried. She's still young enough. There were men in Moab. She could go back to her homeland. But she says, nope, I'm eliminating all those other options. I'm losing my life, and I'm committing myself to you. Committing herself to Naomi. There was no future with Naomi, but she says, I'm going to stay with you. This was such an act of self-sacrificial commitment. But it's also an act of unconditional commitment. Because here's Naomi at her lowest point. There's nothing really lovable about Naomi at this point. In fact, Naomi at one point, there's this really a sad play on words that she says about her own name. Naomi meant a sweet thing, but she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And so she, Naomi's at her most unattractive place right now. I mean, there, there is, she's at her absolute lowest. She's at rock bottom. There, there is nothing in it for Ruth to commit herself to Naomi, and yet she says, I'm giving myself to you. I'm committing myself to you. It's not like Naomi's saying, hey, stick with me, Ruth, and you're gonna go places. No, 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 no. There is nothing in it. There's no, nothing she's gonna get out of this. This is an unconditional commitment to Naomi. But it's also determined, because look how determined she is. Naomi says, well, no, 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 no. I want you to, she says several times, no, go home, go home. Don't stay with me. But Ruth will not give in. She says, I'm sticking with you. You can say whatever you want. I'm not leaving. And so it's almost comical. At the very end, it says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. <laughs> okay, 
All right. I get it. You're not going to leave. This is a commit this is a picture of chesed. Self-sacrificial, unconditional, determined commitment. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm going to stay with you to the bitter end and there is nothing you can do to get rid of me. That's chesed. One of the best pictures of Hesed in modern literature is in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Jared Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's, there's this one scene where Frodo uh, left the Shire and he's, he's on a mission to destroy the Ring of Power. Do you remember this if you read the novel? And so he sets out on this journey and Sam is with him, his, his faithful uh, friend Sam, Samwise. And they go to Rivendell and they're staying in the house of uh, Marion Pippin. And, and Frodo realizes, like, this is a really dangerous mission. In fact, on the, I probably won't come back from this mission. And then he realizes that anybody who goes with me is, is going to be on a dangerous mission, and probably nobody's going to come back. And he realizes how difficult and dangerous this is going to be. And so he gets up early in the morning there at Sam and Pip, Pippin's house, and he tries to sneak away so that nobody else will follow him. But then the lights come on, and, and he's discovered And Sam is upset. And this is what Sam says to to Frodo. He says, you can trust us to stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. And this is his said. It's saying, you cannot trust me to let you face trouble alone. You you can trust me for a lot of things, to keep your secrets and and to stay with you through trouble, but you cannot ever trust me to leave you. I'm committed, and it doesn't matter. Such a beautiful picture of Hesed. Now, this, uh, this thing that, that Ruth did to Naomi was shocking in Bethlehem. I mean, it became widely known. People heard about it, and it was shocking in that ancient culture that, that you'd be so attached and committed to somebody that wasn't a blood relative, that was, uh, that was a foreigner. And it was shocking and countercultural in that day, but how shocking and countercultural is this sort of thing in our day? That's what I want us to think about for just a few minutes right now. How countercultural is covenant love in our culture. In our culture, there are two types of relationships, really in any culture. There are consumer relationships and covenantal relationships. And what is a consumer relationship? A consumer relationship is a a relationship with a retailer where you say, listen, I will stay with you as long as you give me a good, good merchandise at a fair price. But as soon as you stop Giving me that, I will leave. And as soon as, this is a disposable relationship. As soon as I am dissatisfied with your product, I'm going to go somewhere else. You see, you sacrifice the relationship for your needs. And this is okay in a consumer relationship. The economy runs on this sort of relationship, right? The, years ago, I had a relationship with Target. And uh, I bought a, te- a tent from Target. And I went camping with the tent. I opened it up. And out when it, we opened up the box, some old clothes and a pair of shoes came out. There's no tent in there. And so we took the thing back to Target and we said, look, we want to return this. And they said no. And at that moment, my relationship to Target was over. 
right? I was dissatisfied with their service and their product. Now we kind of got to back together again because their marketing got so much better and it's such a better store now. But anyway, this is the way consumer relationships are. You sacrifice the relationship for your own needs. It's disposable. But a covenant relationship is totally different. A covenant relationship is when you sacrifice your needs in order to keep the relationship. Where you say, I'm committed to you and I'm loyal to you and even if you're not meeting my needs, I'm sticking with you. Even when I'm bored or or uncomfortable or discouraged, I'm gonna stick with you to the bitter end. This is a covenant relationship and covenant relationships are always marked by chesed. Now increasingly in our culture, we are treating all of our personal relationships like consumer relationships. And there's all sorts of sociologists that write about this, that, that the way Americans treat their relationships are almost like they're, they're disposable. And we kind of slip in effortlessly. We slip in and we slip out of relationships. And so the average marriage uh, lasts, that end, ends in divorce, lasts about eight years. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago where they were talking about marriage and, and the guy was making the argument that if you look at other animals and you look at science that, and you look at human beings, this is about the norm for humans. And so it's okay. You know, you get in a relationship, as soon as that person's no longer meeting your needs or it gets difficult or, it's get, or it gets uncomfortable, hey, let's not put pressure on ourselves. Let's, let's just bail. And so the average uh, marriage that ends in divorce lasts about eight years. Uh, people stay in jobs much shorter today than they used to. Uh, people have, uh, even friendships don't last as long as they, as they used to last. And part of this is because of mobilization, right? We live in a society where you can travel for opportunity. You, you know, it used to be that you grew up in the same city and you died in the same city and you married to the same person and you worked in the same job for all of your life, but now the opportunities are endless and we could travel different places to take new jobs. And I'm, I'm not against this, right? I've, since I've been married, I've traveled five times in five different states. And I'm glad for the opportunity, but this makes covenant relationships very challenging. And it's so easy to slip in and slip out and people move, friends move away faster than you can make them and so why even get real connected or real attached in the first place? And so, and so we live in this sort of uncommitted, disposable relationship type of world. There's an author, uh, his name is Mark Edmondson, and he's a professor of English at the University of Virginia. And there's this article that he wrote, it's a very famous article called Dwelling in Possibilities. And he talks about millennials, he talks about his students and, about, and the way that they're kind of very uncommitted and always kind of uh, slipping from one relationship to another. And uh, he talks about that in this article and he says, look, we're, we're, we're non-committal and we wanna keep all of our options open. And this is what he says about his students. He says, my students are possibility junkies. For as much as they want to do and actually manage to do, they always strive to keep their options open and never shut possibilities down. Ask an American college student what he's doing on Friday night. Ask him at 5.30 Friday afternoon. I don't know will likely be his first response. But then will come a list of possibilities to make the average Chinese menu seem short. The concert, the play, the movie, the party, the stay-at-home chilling, the monitoring of sports center, the reading fast, fast of an assignment or two. 
And once you do get somewhere, wherever it might be, you'll find that, as Gertrude Stein has put it, there's no there there. At a student party, about a fourth of the people have their iPhones locked to their ears. And what are they doing? They're talking to their friends about what? About another party they could be going to. And so maybe it's social media or maybe it's mobilization, but we live in a culture where said is in very low supply. And people feel free to bail. And people feel this way about their relationships with their spouses and their neighbors and their friends and even their churches, maybe even God. Hey, when it's not working for me, when it gets uncomfortable, I'm out of here. And this is, this is sad because it creates a fragmented society, a lonely society, a society where everybody's afraid to make a commitment, a relationally thin society. How desperately do we need this idea of God's covenant faithfulness? Because God's covenant faithfulness, when it comes into your life, makes you a committer rather than a consumer. And as a general pattern of life, you value and forge faithful, committed relationships. You become less flaky and noncommittal, and you become more loyal. Is your life, are your relationships marked by loyalty and commitment and faithfulness? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking about bailing. You're just, your marriage is getting too hard, or that friendship is getting too hard, and you're thinking about bailing. Think again. This is God's most defining mark. This is what makes God God. This is what makes him who he is. And this is what should mark our lives, loyalty, commitment, relationships marked by faithfulness. Now what's so wonderful when, when you have relationships like this, and this is why they're so powerful and important, is because they end up redeeming you. said has a way of healing people. And you see this in the story. Because Naomi, where is Naomi in the story? She, she is at rock bottom. She has lost her family. She's lost her, her loved ones. And she says, I'm bitter. Don't call me sweet, I'm bitter. And at one point she even looks at God and she calls it, she says, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Notice she, she, words, she uses the word Almighty and not God's covenant name. God up there, it's not that she doesn't believe in God anymore, she just doesn't believe that he's committed to her anymore. But then halfway through the story, everything changes. And she finally is able to call God by his name again. And she even says that God has shown me his has said. Now what happened between bitter Naomi and now Naomi who, who understands God's love again? Well, Ruth happened. This love from Ruth, this commitment that Ruth showed her has helped her believe in God again. Covenant love is healing. And covenant love changes us. In the story, covenant love changes everybody. It changes Naomi, like I said. It even changes Boaz, which we're not going to look at him, but he, he's transformed. He's affected by Ruth's hesed, and so he shows it to, to Ruth. And then there's hesed everywhere. This sort of love changes and heals and redeems people. Why is that? It's because there's something that's true about every single one of us. There's a need that every single one of us has. We need to be known and loved. 
You need to be known and loved. And hesed, or covenant love, is when you look at somebody and you say, I know you. And I see you in all of your brokenness, in all of your ugliness, and I still love you. And I'm not leaving. When you experience this, it changes you. One of my favorite movies is Magnolia. And there's a scene in, in the movie where uh, John C. Riley, who's a police officer, is having a date with uh, Claudia Wilson, who's this kind of meth head girl. And he, he met her during one of his raids, and she's a total disaster, but he falls in love with her. And they go, go out on the date. And so he's sitting in the restaurant, and she comes in, and here's what she looks at him, and she says, can I tell you something? I'm really nervous that you're going to hate me soon. You're going you're gonna to find out stuff about me, and you're going you're gonna to hate me. And he says, what do you mean? And she says, you have, you have so many good things. You seem so together. You're a police officer. You seem so straight and so together without any problems. And then he looks at her, and he says, I lost my gun today. I lost my gun today when I left you, and I'm the laughing stock of a lot of people. And I wanted to tell you, and I wanted, and I wanted you to know, and it's on my mind, and it makes me feel like a fool, and I feel like a fool. And you ask that we should say what we're thinking and not, and not lie about things. Well, I can tell you that. I lost my gun today. And I'm not, I'm not a good cop. And I'm looked down at, and I know that. And I'm scared that once you find out, you'll leave me. See, they're expressing a deep human fear that if you really knew me, if you knew the real me, you'd be gone. But covenant love is when you look at a person and you see them at rock bottom like Naomi and you see them in all of their brokenness and all of their bitterness and you say, I'm gonna love you anyway. And this, when you experience this, it changes you. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, to be, to be known and not, or to be loved and not known, that's superficial. Right? If you love, if you love somebody, if, if somebody loves you and you've given them an image of your ideal self, well, that's superficial. But to be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear. But to be known and loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God, and it's what we need more than anything, to be known and loved. When somebody knows you, and they see you, and they say, I'm not leaving. This is said, and it's healing, and it's transforming, and it's what you need more than anything. And our culture is so bankrupt of this sort of thing. And what if we as a community, what if we as the church lived lives where, where our, our, we, our relationships were marked by loyalty and commitment and faithfulness, self-sacrificial, li- limiting our options, unconditional and determined. I am for you and I'm not gonna leave you. This will change you. Well, let me just end by asking the question, how can we be a community like this? How do we show love like this? Well, the, the way we show love by, like this is by, by realizing that we are loved like this by God. And listen, the story of Ruth is really a story about God. The story of Ruth's said is really a story about God's said. 
This story points to Jesus. Literally it does because at the end of the book, uh, it ends with Naomi there rocking little baby Obed, who's, who's Ruth's baby. And Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, and David is the father of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This story literally points to Jesus. But what Ruth does points to what Jesus does for all of us. God is so committed to us that he is willing to to come into the world and bear our burdens and bear our sins and die on the cross so that we could live. His love is unconditional. His love is self-sacrificial and he's determined to love you. As 1 Timothy puts it, even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The principle that most of our hearts operate in is if, if I'm a really good boy or a really good girl, then God will bless me. Then God will love me. If I work really hard, if I keep all the rules, then God will love me. No, 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 that's not the way it works with God. He is a God of covenant love. He loves you, and while you were yet a sinner and broken, he died for you. And even though you are faithless, even though you blow it all the time and I blow it all the time, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is committed to you. And God will stick to you no matter what. He's committed to your good. And you could bank on that. And you could rest on that. He is a God of said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of steadfast love. God, we can can pay this sort of love forward when we realize that you've given it to us. And uh, Lord, we pray that in this culture uh, marked by a lack of commitment and disposable relationships, God, that we might be people uh, that are faithful, that are loyal, that that even uh, though the person that we we know and are in relationship with is, is broken and and difficult at times, Lord, that we would love them no matter what. I pray that you would do this work by your, in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.